Lord willing, in the month of February, we're talking about what it means to be part of a local congregation. Or to, to put it in a much more uh, mundane language, we're moving through the Bible to see what it says about church membership. Now, that is not, <laughs> church membership is not the first topic that might come to your mind when you think about following Christ and what it means to follow Him. Uh, but one of my goals is I want to show you that this issue matters perhaps more than you initially think. And not only does it matter more than you think, but it's actually quite more useful than it might first appear. Two weeks ago in his uh, podcast, Albert Moeller uh, spoke about an article that was published by the Religious News Service, and it was an article by Kimberly Winston, and it was called this, New Head of Major Secular Group, a Christian. That's the title. Here's how the article begins. The Secular Coalition for America, a lobbying group with atheists, humanists, and other non-believer member organizations, has hired a Christian as its new executive director. Larry Decker is 40. He was raised in an independent Baptist church, but now identifies as a nun, uh, N-O-N-E. That's a term you may hear more and more, nun. One of the 23% of Americans who say they are religiously unaffiliated, according to the Pew Research Center. Like the majority of nuns, Decker is not an atheist. He still identifies as a Christian, albeit a nominal one. This is what he said. I was raised Christian, but for years I have been unaffiliated because I cannot reconcile my values with traditional Christianity, including their concept of God. Right now, if I had to put a label on it, I would say that I identify as an unaffiliated Christian. And like millions of people in our country, my belief system continues to evolve and is entirely personal to me. It's not entirely personal to you anymore when you give an interview to a major news organization and it's published. Uh, now, he, uh, Decker uses this very strange um, phrase to describe himself. He's an unaffiliated Christian. Now, what does that mean? It's a very strange word. I know he says that his beliefs are entirely personal to me, and we, we live in a, in a culture where it's, it's um, rude to, to probe after someone else's beliefs. But I'd like you just to think about this for just a minute. What does the word unaffiliated Christian mean? Well, the truth of the matter is he's affiliated with something. He's affiliated with the Secular Coalition of America. And isn't that a strange... The phrase is strange. It seems like kind of an oxymoron, right? Unaffiliated Christian. Uh, it's like saying that you're an illiterate reader or a meat-eating vegetarian or a preschool senior citizen, right? Deckard, he doesn't believe in the traditional concept of God. He promotes the views of non-believers and he has no connection to any sort of local congregation. So in what sense is he a Christian? Is there a difference between... In the way he lives between being an unaffiliated Christian as opposed to being an unaffiliated Hindu or an unaffiliated Muslim. Is there really a difference? I'm confused by the category that he uses because we have opened before us a passage of Scripture where Paul argues that one of the marks of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is placing, the Holy Spirit places that believer in a local congregation. 
I'm not sure you can in any meaningful sense say that you are a Christian without a local group of believers to which you belong. It's, it's kind of like saying that you're a musician without an instrument or sheet music. Or you're a medical doctor without any patients. Or a farmer without a field. Or a shepherd without sheep. What does a shepherd without sheep do besides starve? We're going to talk uh, today about membership as a sovereign work of God. Uh, Our practice of membership as a church is a response to, it's an expression of work that God has already done. We saw something similar about this last week. Part of God's plan to spread His grace to the whole world is that He calls out and separates His own people. He does it for His glory and for our good. And today we're going to continue to see that membership is part of God's work. And we're going to find that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read this uh, chapter this morning. We gather together as a church every week under the authority of God's Word. We don't do this every time we read it, but I would like to this morning, if we would, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand while we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Shall we stand while... Our Lord speaks to us through His Word. We'll stand for this reading. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says... Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines." Just as a body, the one has many parts. Now I'll stop here for just a moment. It's the only place I'm going to stop. Your translation might say members. Does your translation say members right there? Now, just as a body, the one has many members. Church membership is a, well, membership is a Bible word, isn't it? It's, it's Paul's word. Or some churches use the term partnership. Maybe they're using the word part, too, <laughs> Well, just as one body, the one, just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. You may be seated. You may know this, but uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is the first chapter in a section in the book of Corinthians where Paul is answering a question. They have, the Corinthians have written him questions. Actually, that section of Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians starts back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul says, now for the matters that you wrote about. And then he talks about, in that chapter, singleness. And then in 8, he talks about food sacrifice to idols. And here he comes, chapter 12, to spiritual gifts, the miraculous. He does not want them to be confused. See, the Corinthians had come to faith in Jesus Christ out of a very pagan background, and in Corinth in particular, as part of the pagan worship, there was a lot of supernatural, or at least good imitations, of supernatural, miraculous things. Uh, Ecstatic speech, healing miracles, visions, prophecies. And the Corinthians, they had questions. What's the relationship between what we used to see and uh, being power, empowered by the Holy Spirit now? Um, is anyone who can do a miracle from God? Or what about the people who don't seem to be able to do miracles? Are they really Christians? And frankly, do we really need them if they can't do anything fabulous in church? Well... That's the context, and I want to draw your attention to what Paul says about God's sovereign work in putting a church together, not just in the gifts that he distributes, but in the very people themselves. Look with me again at verse 18 and what it says. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now, up to verse 11, Paul's been talking about the gifts, uh, just in general. But then in verse 12, he starts talking about the people themselves. Uh, Verse 13 talks about Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free. How we were all baptized to form this one body. And he says that every single person in the church in Corinth is there by divine design. God places the members there in the church just as he wills. Think about those two words, those two verbs that God does. What does God do? God places and God wills. Now, does that church, uh, does this verse, uh, excuse me, does that same verse apply to our church too? 
God's put every single person in this church in Corinth just as he wanted. I think the implication of this passage is that God has done the same thing in our own congregation. Every single person at Grace Baptist Church of Millersville hereby divine design. Uh, This is actually a chapter that seems to revel in God's uh, sovereign work. Uh, look at verse 11 here. We see the same thing. The emphasis in verse 11 is on the spirit, uh, spiritual gifts. All these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Then look at verse 24. Determination is a sovereign word. Verse 24. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together. God puts the body together. Or um, look at verse 28. God has placed in the church divine design. You actually could see the God-centeredness, I think, even more so when you look back at verses of 4 through 6. There's some wonderful parallelism here. We see God himself, all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but literally the same God working all in all. So, a congregation put together by God's sovereign plan for His purposes, working in and through His people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is the one who places the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. Now, I think that's a strange verse, verse 18. I think it's strange because it goes contrary to um, our experience, my experience of, of going to church and of participating in church. Um, verse 18 very strongly emphasizes this is God's work, God's will, your presence, your participation, an act of the sovereign God. What's, that just doesn't seem to me how, how we feel that we get to church. Um, just think about this with me this morning. How, how did you come to our church? <laughs> don't nod on 741. And, no, don't say that. That's not what I'm talking about. How, how did you hear? Why are you here? Why are you part of this church? Uh, for good or bad reasons, here you are, right? Um, Maybe you're here because someone forced you to be here. Your dad said, get in the car, let's go. And he's been doing that for 15 years, and here you are, 15 years later. Maybe you became because of uh, the music that we sing or the size of the church. You don't want to go to churches too big, or you like the doctrine, we're Baptists and not brethren or assemblies of God. You, the teaching, good or bad, here you are. Finding a church... Verse 18 emphasizes God's sovereignty. It's not how it feels, though. Finding a church, it feels, to me, I think, it's a painful process. The last time uh, we did, we surrendered to the process very early. Um, Kathy and I, when we moved to Dallas, Texas, I'm not sure even why we went there the first Sunday we were there, but uh, we ended up at a a local Bible church called Schofield Memorial Church. Uh, Schofield, C.I. Schofield, as in the Schofield Reference Bible. He was the pastor of the church at one point in time. And they named the church after him. So we went to the church. We liked it. It was great. The people were friendly. Sunday school class was interesting. The, the preaching was good. It was a very fine visit. We enjoyed it. 
So the next week, we went to Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Now, Prestonwood Baptist Church is then, uh, was then and is still now one of the largest churches in the city of Dallas. Um, after we moved uh, up here, they built a new congregation, Prestonwood did, and in it has seven miles of pews that they fill three times in a weekend. So um, we went to Prestonwood. We liked it. It was, it was, it was a bit intimidating, but it, it would have been okay. It was a fine church. And, and I, I, I found visiting just exhausting. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to park. You don't know how to behave. You don't know when to sit. You don't know when to stand. You don't know what to do. There are about 5,000 churches in Dallas, Texas. So I said to my wife after we went to Prestonwood, I said, let's just go back to Schofield. It was a good church. We can look forever. No church is perfect. Let's just go there. We surrendered very early. Um, I'm really happy that we did. We surrendered early, and that process that was short didn't feel like verse 18 was happening. It didn't feel to us like God was putting the body together like he wanted. But here it is. This is the sovereign work of God. Now, I think God uses means to accomplish this. Um, uh, let's, um, let, me, let me just suggest some of them. Maybe this is a little bit of a tangent. But I want to talk about some of the means that God uses to accomplish what verse 18 says. How does he do this work? Let me just mention four means that God uses this morning. All right, one of them, location. Does it surprise you? I'm going to start there. Location. Right? Um, you should go to a church that is as close as possible to your house. It's not always possible. Maybe it's becoming less important when we be, as we become more mobile as a society. I don't know. But for strategic reasons, you should be close to home. And if you you move. Your church should be a factor. How far away from my church is this house? Location. Now, second, teaching. Teaching or, or doctrine. Your goal should be to be a part of a church where you can own what is taught as much as possible. Be careful of going to a church where you like the music, but they baptize babies and you think the Bible teaches we should only baptize believers. Don't do that. Don't. Don't go to a church because you like the organ music, but you don't agree with what the, their interpretation of the Apostle Paul. Problem. Or uh, don't go to a church where the preaching is good, but they don't ordain women, and you think the Bible says that we should ordain women. You, you should be able to own what is taught there as much as possible. Actually, this passage touches on that a little bit. See, the Corinthians are wondering about the connection between the miraculous and following Jesus. And Paul straightens them out uh, very uh, uh, quickly here. He says, someone may be able to do impressive things, but if they don't affirm the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, they are not to be listened to. That's actually what he's saying in verse 3. I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's here not literally talking about those words, but the content of those words. Anyone can say the words, Jesus is Lord. You can get those words out of your mouth with or without the Holy Spirit. But he's talking about the overall truth that is contained in them, the commitments of them, that... that uh, uh, Whoever is speaking 
by the Holy Spirit, they will center on the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Jesus is Lord will be their slogan, it will be their mission, it will be their vision, it will be their values. When you think about what a church teaches, here's where you should start. Now, I suppose while I'm at it here for just a moment, I, I want to I say something uh, here this morning. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that I'm really glad that you're here. Really glad that you're here. Um, I hope that, that someone welcomed you when you came in the door. I hope someone helped you find where you're supposed to go so that your visit here wasn't as stressful as, as I find it. I don't visit churches a whole lot. I do when I'm on vacation. And I, <laughs> I drive up to the church and I sit in my car and I wait until the exact last minute and I get out and I run in the building and sit down and hope no one talks to me. All right? It's not very pastoral. <laughs> but I'm not pastoring those people. So, you know, I, 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 I go to, to encourage some of my friends who are pastors and I go visit in their congregation. But I, it's, 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 I find it just hard. Thankfully, there are people in our church who are a lot friendlier than I am. That's wonderful. So that I hope that you... Don't find it so hard here. Um, I want to tell you something. If you're visiting, I want to tell you something about our teaching here. Uh, So we've talked here about this centrality of Jesus' name and his supremacy here in this passage. But something else that you should know about us. A few chapters later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I want you to know what's the most important thing. The most important thing for a congregation of people who name Jesus as Savior. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We gather together weekly as people with an interest in centering our lives more and more around this historical event, this historical event about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God's Son, who has come to earth, and He lived a perfect life. He's the only one who has ever done that. Then He died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. God shows how much He loves us. And that while we were still in rebellion against him, disobeying him, not living the life that he created human beings to live, Christ died for us. He died as our substitute. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's sitting at God's right hand. And he offers life and forgiveness to all who receive it by faith. Christ died for our sins. It's a message to believe, be believed. And it's the most important thing that we believe in our church. In fact, um, have you, have you ever seen one of those giant funnels, those giant, giant funnels at museums? I've seen it some at malls sometimes. It, it, I'm sure there's some scientific theory they're trying to teach you with these funnels. But what you're supposed to do, <laughs> they're trying to raise money too, is take a quarter and you put it in the funnel and you roll the quarter, preferably quarter, not nickels and dimes and pennies, you cheapskate. So you put the quarter in and the quarter rolls around the funnel and, and, and as it goes down, it falls farther down and it, the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it finally drops in the bottom. Sometimes it's, it's fun. Uh, you, you, you can give, well, I've done this, you can give uh, nickels to your children and they ready, set, go, and then they send two nickels racing around and they go and you can see who gets down to the bottom first. Have you ever seen one of those funnels? So um, 
our goal, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we come with the intention of being together and encouraging one another to get closer and closer to this message and all its implications. That's what's true about us. Now, if you've never heard that before about Jesus and his death and his resurrection for us, you're surrounded by people who believe it. We, we love this message and we want you to believe it too. So this is part of our teaching. Now, third, let's move on here to our values. Values. Don't look at just what's written on a church uh, on paper, but what do they actually do? What actually excites them? Uh, D.A. Carson is a teacher, and he said, I learned a long time ago that my students don't learn what I teach them. My students don't learn what I teach them. My students learn what I'm excited about. So what is the church excited about? What... what uh, um, is it, what, is, what are they passionate about? All right, number four, relationships. Relationships. Is there potential for relationships for you in the church? Not with just with people who are like you, but people who are different from you. I sometimes listen to um, and uh, read articles by a British Bible scholar. His name is Alistair Roberts. And Alistair Roberts just announced that he uh, was going to withdraw from Twitter. Some of you don't know what that is, but I'll explain that in a minute. So he he wrote that one of his concerns about social media, uh, all kinds of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Peach, Periscope, Instagram, is that all those things are dominated by young people, especially if it's new. It's all dominated by young people. That's not good. See, you need friends who are older than you, and you need friends who are younger than you. You need that. These are some ways to evaluate a church, some, some ways to think about what sort of church you might become a part of. And all the while that you're doing that, God is at work in verse 18 to put the parts, the members in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Now, this is, this is, I think this is strange sounding because it is, it is different than your experience than, of how you found the church. And I think it really changes how you think about your own participation and your own presence in a congregation. Think with me about this. What's the difference between you're saying, I chose this church and God put me in this church? What's the difference between those two things? Isn't there a difference? I chose this church. I drove here, I listened to the preaching, I met some people, I made a decision to come back and I have been doing it for a long time. That, this may be your experience, but this passage actually tells you that the second one is true. God placed me here in this church. When I was in college, I registered for classes every um, semester, and I always had, <laughs> I had a very high view of what I could accomplish in one semester. So I signed up for a lot of classes. And the first day you go to class, they hand you the uh, syllabi, the syllabus with everything that you're going to need to do in class. And this is like the dope slap of reality. Okay, so um, the syllabus would come and I would start reading. I thought, oh my goodness, there's no way that I'm going to be able to accomplish all these things. So it was routine. I uh, would almost always, at the beginning of every semester, drop a class. So one of the classes I dropped, I was interested in, in the class, but I just, just no way I could do it. So I dropped the class. The next day, I saw the teacher of that class, the professor walking in the hall, and he said, hey, Joel, you dropped my class. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't manage. 
And he said, oh, I, I was disappointed about that because I was really looking forward to having you participate in class discussions. I'd like to tell you that his hope for me made me go back to the registrar's office and sign up for the class again. I didn't do it. But isn't there a difference? Isn't there a difference between, here's my list of classes, I chose them all, and yeah, I'd really like you to be in this class with me. Isn't there a difference? There's a difference between, I chose this church, and God put me in this church. I think it should change your perspective when it comes to church. I, I think it teaches you that you are here for reasons that extend beyond your preferences and your needs and your expectations, your opportunities. Actually, I want to suggest to you three ways that this phrase, God placed me in this church, changes how you think about being part of a congregation. First of all, you, you come to see where you belong in the church as a, as a sober decision. It's a sober solemn decision. I say, verse 18 says that God placed you in this church and you have to think to yourself, really? Do I really belong here? Um, if, if building God's church, if building churches is God's work, did I really take this seriously enough? Have I really thought carefully enough about this? What, what are my reasons for being here? Do you really belong here? Have you really thought about this in terms of God's work? It's a sobering decision. I realize that as, as a result of doing this series and talking about what it means to belong to a church, some of you may figure out that you don't belong here. Uh, we'll miss you, but go find a church you do belong to, that you can belong to, you should belong to. It's a sober decision. Now, second, you come to see this as a steadfast decision, a steadfast decision. Now, what does that mean? If God placed you here, there should be a steadiness about it, a solidity about it. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be here forever. <laughs> uh, this afternoon, you're going to hear reports from the leaders of all of our committees at, at church. And, and sometimes when we recruit people to serve on committees, that, well, how long is the commitment? And I, I sometimes joke that, that if you're a member... You are, uh, if you are a member of a committee, you're on the committee until you die, and if you're chairman, even that might not get you out of it. So um, that, 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 there's to be a steadiness here uh, about this. My younger sister, she, has, she openly admits to this. She has a disease that she says is common to her peers, and it's called FOMO, F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. The fear that there is something somewhere else, something more interesting going on that I am missing out on, and it's my responsibility to go and find that something that might be more interesting somewhere else. If God puts people in churches, I'm fairly certain that his plan for them does not include going from here to 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 here. There's a steadfastness about it. Actually, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, you, you can see the extent to which God brings the members together. Look with me again at verse 24 and what it says. I want to start reading in the middle of verse 24. What does he say about this? God has put the members of the body, put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It takes steadfastness. It takes steadiness 
to get to this level of concern, to bring this level of concern about. Becoming part of a church is serious. It's more serious than you may have thought about. Now, third, it's a serving decision. It's a serving decision. If God placed you in the church, if that's what He really does, it changes how you gauge your level of participation. You're here at God's appointment. God put you here in this church. Are you going to do the work that He set out before you? Every one of you, you. I think this changes this level of, of commitment, I think, if, if we take 1 Corinthians 12 seriously. God brought us together. Let's together make this place better. And this is chapter, actually, he addresses that in two different ways. In verses 15 and 16, he says, don't try to pull yourself out. In fact, it's, it's impossible. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. You can't of your own volition stop. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. On what basis are you, are you going to withdraw? Regardless of what you say or feel about yourself and the contributions you make, you cannot remove yourself. If you try, you're just hobbling the church. That's actually the point in, in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Hobbling the church. John Ortberg once wrote about a little boy who locked himself in the bathroom. His mother did everything she could to get him out. She had no success. So she called the police. So the police came and they tried to get the little boy out of the bathroom. He locked himself in and no success. The police did not. So they called the fire department. And the fire department came and they got the little boy out of the bathroom with an axe. Well, his father came home. This must have been in the days before cell phones, one would think. His father came home from work and he, the fire truck was there but there was no smoke and no fire at his house, only a torn apart bathroom door. And he was a little dismayed about this, kind of complaining about how the fire department had torn apart his door and his hinges. He was complaining about it to his friend, and his friend said to him, Listen, man, firefighters only have two tools, an axe and a hose. If you want a lock pick, you need to call a burglar or a locksmith. If you call the fire department, you get an axe. That's what you get when you call the fire department. Members who withdraw or hold back hobble the church. So you can't take yourself out. But you can't kick people out either on the basis of your estimation of their gifts or their ability to contribute. We're going to talk about church discipline in the future, but this is talking about, about kicking people out because they're, they're not good enough in what they can contribute. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. This is the balance here in this passage. Just like God designed the human body with every part of it to function, so he has placed the members uh, in a church just like he wanted, and they're all to function. And it creates this beautiful, spirit-filled diversity and balance. 
I was listening to a podcast for pastors a couple of weeks ago, and it was about uh, pastoral tenure. You know, in, in the, the average tenure of senior pastors in some of the largest churches in the United States is 22 years. It's a long time to be in a church. Some uh, church experts, they say on the basis of this, they notice that the more the church, the more the, that you stay as a pastor in a church, the more the church starts to become like you. I shudder when I hear that. You poor people. It's probably true, actually, but it's sad. You know why it's sad? Is because the person who is supposed to have influence over the functioning and shape of the church the most is the Spirit of God, not the pastor. And when the Spirit of God has that influence in a congregation, there is this beautiful diversity and balance. This is a sign of a spirit-filled church. Whenever I'm privileged to do a wedding, I, I stand up in, in, uh, after they exchange vows and rings, I quote Jesus. Jesus said about marriage. What God has joined together, let no one separate. What Jesus teaches in that verse about marriage is that marriage is God's work. Marriage is the work of God. It might not look like it. It might not feel like it. But when you go to a wedding, be sure God is at work there. The mother of the bride thinks she's done all the work, but God is doing the work at the wedding. Marriage is the work of God. He unites a husband and wife. Now, how does God do that? He uses means. He uses these very public vows. Is there any sense in which the church too, in which he does this in the church too? Your your wedding vows and our church covenant vows, they're not on, on the same level, but they are both the doing of God. This is the sovereign mystery work that God does. And there is the public affirmation. We're going to talk about that public affirmation more next week. But remember this, church membership is a manifestation of God's work. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this passage that teaches us about ourselves. We are thankful to you for your sovereign work in your people. We thank you for members of our congregation, like we are thankful for members of a body. We have amongst us noses and eyes and ears and feet and hands and elbows. We confess, Lord, that we are sometimes slow to see or appreciate uh, that you determine and you plan how a congregation is put together. We're we're slow to acknowledge that and we don't respond as we ought to it. But thank you that you teach us. Oh, your word is good to encourage and correct and admonish us. Lord, I pray that you would in our church magnify your grace. You call out and separate your people for the, for the, the magnification of your great grace. Do that in our church. And, and move us with confidence forward saying, God put me here. Thank you for these men and women, these teenagers and children in this place today. We acknowledge your supremacy and in fact we thank you for it. We pray these things together in Jesus' name saying, Amen.